Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I believe there's a rhythm and art in everything that we do. This is my journey about how I went from being a hip hop dancing engineer to a multifamily real estate investor. If you wanna learn more about how you can start investing in real estate, stay tuned to learn from multifamily real estate investors and hear how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. What's up everyone? Welcome to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Kuhn. I'm on the journey to going from the hip hop dancing engineer turned multifamily real estate investor. This is the show where I interview multifamily real estate investors, discuss how they found their rhythm and created their own sound investments. But before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind you that this show is brought to you by Nightly Productions. If you already have a platform, a podcast, YouTube channel, maybe you're trying to create a website or maybe you're trying to throw a summit, reach out to Nightly Productions because they can help you create content that breaks the noise and help you stop wasting time and money on content that does not deliver. Now, for today's guest, we've he is a real estate investor, a top producing broker, a fly fisherman, a family man. His passion lies in income producing real estate. While attending BYU studying construction management, he has successfully started his own real estate flipping and long-term holding company. As an investor and licensed realtor, Sam has bought and sold and participated in over $100 million in real estate transactions over the past nine years, from flipping homes to developing $35 million worth of fourplex complexes to buying large apartment communities. Sam has vast experience and expertise that has not only benefited his family and partners, but many other loyal investor clients as well. Sam actually has never made less than a 20% ROI on real estate investments, and this is possible through careful planning, research, and execution. He is also the host of the Recession Proof Podcast. Please give a warm welcome to Sam Newell. Hey, man. Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be on. Yeah, no, thank you for 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 coming on. It's a it's a pleasure to finally meet you. I've heard so many just like great things about you from from other people within my network, and you know it's it's just a pleasure to have you here. So, aside from just what what I said in in the intro, I'd love to you know just know what kind of like sparked your curiosity with real estate in the first place because it sounded like you had a pretty uh, early on journey into it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I was supposed to go to the Air Force Academy to fly. F-16s. That's what I thought I was going to do out of high school. So definitely not real estate minded at first. I decided I wanted to go to BYU with some friends. You know, I served a Mormon mission for two years in Peru and and we made some buddies down there with other missionaries and we wanted to go to BYU and, and have a good time. And I wanted a little bit less structure, I decided, than, than the Air Force Academy. So I was going to do the um, ROTC route at BYU. So that was the goal was, was to uh, just drop bombs and, and dogfight <laughs> and, and fly, fly fighter jets. But while I was at BYU, I was doing mechanical engineering, didn't love that, switched to construction management, really liked kind of the systems. And, and I've always been someone who likes to take something and remodel it or refinish it and, and see the finished product. So my best buddy and I talked about flipping homes. And I was doing summer sales at the time to pay for school, knocking doors all summer long, selling pest control or alarms and making, you know, pretty good money, 30, 40, 50,000 a summer. 
And so that's pretty good for a college student and bought my first flip. My wife and I bought a really gross house in 2010. <laughs> it was nasty. It's the quote unquote cat pee houses. It was bad. And so I, I think in the height of the market, it sold for 330. We bought it for 170. Ended up moving into it. It was really nasty. I did all the work myself while going to school. And uh, not all the work. I mean, most of the work, laying the tile. And, and you know, I'd gr- grown up in construction. And, and then I had YouTube University to teach me the rest. <laughs> and uh, we ended up selling it for 240 or 245 or something. And that's really good money. You know, that's that's really hard to beat. And meanwhile, I just... I didn't love construction management as much as I thought. And the realtor who uh, sold me my house, she said, hey, if, if you can knock doors, you know, if, if you've been a Mormon missionary, you know, preaching Jesus for two years, and, <laughs> and now you've been doing summer sales for four years every summer, and you can knock doors. I mean, you're a salesman. Go, go get your real estate license, flip houses, and make, make money. And I just thought, man, if I could just make $100,000 a year, that would be, I mean, life would be good. That would be so, so cool. I could flip houses. I loved the before and after, you know, the, the, the first flip I did, I upgraded way too much, put way too much nice, (laughs) nice stuff in it. I mean, granite countertops, this beautiful travertine and, um, different designs and things I did. And, and obviously it sold great, but, um, no, so I got my license, kept flipping, and I had this amazing broker, John Hart, Mountland Realty, friend, broker, mentor, man, what what a great guy. And he he said, hey, if you like flipping, wait till you see multifamily and what it can do for you. And he started teaching me how to calculate a cap rate and how to work with investors. And I started selling to investors and and learning about passive income and the power that buying and holding and and having the, these rental properties could could do, and so I started making more and more money, and um, and working with investors. And and the coolest thing that I think I did is I worked with an investor who was a plumber, had never made more than sixty thousand a year in his life, but was worth well over a couple million bucks. And he would come in in his ratty, dirty, you know, plumbing clothing. You know, right. he'd been <laughs> working on pipes and all day, and and he'd come in and and he'd have a like a hundred thousand dollars down for for down payment. He had just sold a property or refinanced a property and he'd buy another rental. And the guy got to the point where he didn't have to work anymore, just had enough rental properties where he could retire himself from plumbing and he was done. He he was done. He never had to work again. And man, what a what an amazing story from a guy, you know, a lot of people think to invest or to retire, you have to make all this crazy amount of money. And he had just bought and held properties, refinanced, bought more properties. And that's when the light bulb went off. It really clicked. I was like, damn, that's what I want to do. I want to build this empire and and have the passive income and be able to retire myself. And so, you know, uh, I'm curious then, like moving forward into just like your first deal, uh, your first multifamily property deal, like what, how big was it? How did you find the deal? And and uh, yeah, how did you guys finance it? Yeah, so I mean, I immediately started looking for duplexes. And one fun thing about my brain—I'm pretty nerdy—but um, one fun thing about, yeah, me too. about there me you go <laughs> is um, I'm a huge nerd. And any goals I put up on my wall, and I really focus on—I have this dream wall, 
and I have the crazy, crazy goals. Like one of my goals right now is get to a billion dollars in assets with my company, billion dollars in real estate holdings. It's going to take a lot. But then I have the more realistic, more immediate goals. And I, and I put a picture of this duplex up on my wall. And I said, I want to own a duplex. It's going to cash flow three, $400 a side. Maybe I'll live in one side and kind of house hack it. And I put this nice little duplex on my wall and I was cold calling. And that's how I sold real estate. I just cold called three, four hours a day and, and just busted my ass. And it was, it was fun, a lot of work, but I was going to get there. I was, I was getting ready to have this down payment. My buddy walks in. He's like, oh, hey, that's a good duplex. He's like, where is that? I'm like, well, it's just down the street. I want to buy something like that someday. He's like, well, you just sold a flip. Go buy it, dumbass. I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) We go buy it now. And I was like, okay, I I think I should save a little bit more. He's like, no, you jackass. Go buy it. That's an amazing property. Because he looked at the numbers. I put the numbers all out in front of me. He's like, go buy it now. And I said, Okay. So like the day that I put the the duplex up on my dream board, Dave, my friend, had came in and, and said, Stop being an idiot. You you can just go buy it. Just move into it. You don't have to put put as much down because I was I wasn't sure if I wanted to house hack it. So I wrote an offer and we moved in a couple months later. It wasn't fun. It, it was kind of nasty and, and not the best neighborhood. My wife wasn't super excited about it. We had a one year old baby. <laughs> but um, geez, we lived for free, you know. The, the the rents from the other side cover the mortgage and we lived for free for six months. And then we moved out and went and house hacked another flip and then uh, moved some renters in and we were cash flowing. I think it was like 700 bucks a month, ended up selling it after six months to go buy another property. I think we made like 70,000 in six months in that property. Wow. So, you know, what I'm curious then is like, so you were going from like duplex to maybe like another duplex or more like the small residential type properties you know, what was that transition like going into these larger apartment complexes? Just because like, you have a, a very nice portfolio. And I mean, yeah. and people are always scaling up. And so, you know, like in terms of like mindset and even even just like that transition, like what did what did that look like? Yeah, you know, and, and investors ask me all the time, how should I get started? And, and I tell them you should house hack 100 percent. You should move into a duplex or a fourplex if you can. Even if you have a family, make the sacrifice for a few years, your portfolio, your retirement accounts will thank you in the future. However, if you're trying to take down big deals and and you have limited money, I would go multifamily. And on my podcast, most of my interviewees say they wish they had never done single family. So I'm under the kind of in the camp where please house hack because you're going to pay a mortgage or rent no matter what, right? So I'm not going to say never do single family or never do duplexes or fourplexes, but I was stuck in the single family duplex fourplex. So I'll tell you a story. I started in 2010. I need to update my bio. I think I've worked on just, just over $300 million worth of transactions since then. Oh, most of that. No, just, just 200 million over. No big yeah. deal. <laughs> uh, um, most of that is single family. And, and mm. a lot of that was developing fourplex communities. So from, from where I bought that duplex, about a year later, I jumped in with this group. We developed, built, and sold fourplexes to our investors. I don't know what the total is. I mean, just one of those projects I did was $35 million in Boise. Worked on multiple $30 to $50 million projects here in Utah and Texas with them. So I actually don't know what the count is. But these guys were, were buying these fourplexes from us. And they were great. They made great money. But they'd be all over the place. 
and there wasn't a ton of scale. I mean, we scaled because we had one fourplex community, and that's when I kind of realized, man, the management and everything is so much easier. If, if I just owned one of these communities, it would be cool. So I started thinking about syndicating it or trying to get my investors to just buy one community together instead of a fourplex here, a fourplex there started researching syndication and multifamily. And, and that's really when I got interested and in started educating myself. And then my, I was, my mind was blown. When I started really looking at the numbers, how profitable multifamily properties are, how much more recession-proof they are, how much more scalable they are, and, and how you can really limit your, your expenses and your overhead. And I took Rod Cleve's bootcamp and, and I got my CCIM which is a real estate designation and for, for commercial and just educated myself and left the fourplex group and immediately started jumping in. That was in 2018 and immediately started jumping into syndications with Rod and Robert and helping them purchase, raise money for, and, and take down these large, large multifamily assets. I wanted to learn on someone else's dime, right? <laughs> well, that's probably not the best way to say it. I wanted to learn <laughs> on with someone else. So I didn't cost my investors any money. So I wanted to learn with someone that was extremely experienced, good at what they did and help them, but not take risks for myself or my investors that were unnecessary. I'd ra- And so I didn't really make any money working with them. And I worked with them for a year and a half on a few different projects. I was fine with that because I had made a nice nest egg from, from selling a lot of homes and real estate. And I wanted to get the experience. So what I did is find a really good mentor, a couple really good friends, and did deals with them. And that's when the light bulb kept going, you know, another light bulb, another light bulb, and just learning so much and not really learning on someone else's dime, but learning on someone else's time, really. Right. Helping them, adding value. I knew how to raise money. I knew how to do due diligence. I knew how to asset manage from my experience, but I didn't know how to take down a massive $15 million, $20 million multifamily asset on my own. So I added value, didn't really get paid for it but got paid in experience and learned the good practices and what not to do and what to do. And, and man, it was, it, it really blew my mind in 2018 going from doing, you know, I probably, I think I sold a 90 something fourplexes in 2018 to taking down a couple large multifamily assets and looking at the numbers, looking at the loans, understanding everything. And, that's when I made the decision, I'll, I'll never do single family again. And I started selling off my own duplexes, fourplexes, and single family assets. And in 2020, I, I officially sold the last two and no longer own single family or, or duplexes. Wow. Well, congrats. You know, something that I wanted to bring up, and in, in, uh, this was a, just based on a prior conversation that we had offline, but you mentioned that it was, as you scale up, it's it's roughly amount around the same amount of work as it would be for the smaller residential properties. And I mean, from someone just coming into the industry, that's pretty brand new. It's a little hard to wrap my head around, especially since there's so many different units. And so I was wondering if you could elaborate um, on that statement. Yeah. So, I mean, what you're talking about is getting a loan or doing due diligence or just just purchasing a property. It's it's basically the same amount of work buying a duplex or a fourplex as it is a 200 unit property. It's it's maybe an extra day of due diligence or two. It's a it's a little bit more money, you know, add a couple zeros is all <laughs> is all. But the right. process is the same and loans are actually easier for the larger properties. 
you know, you get a really good real estate attorney involved, um, a really good CPA involved. And at the end of the day, I started my podcast and, and wanted to call it, you know, recession proof real estate investing, because I learned that while the process is very similar, and if you can raise the money, it, it's it's basically the same buying a duplex and fourplex and a large multifamily asset. The end result is you have scale and you're more recession proof because you have more wiggle room, way more w- wiggle room. So if you think about it, cash flow is king during a recession. If you want to get through the next recession, cash flow is king. You have to look at cash flow, not upside, not appreciation. You have to look at upside. Or excuse me, cash flow. Cash flow. So in a duplex, if you have one renter move out, you're screwed. You you may or may not be able to cover the mortgage and expenses that month because 50% of your rent is gone. In our uh, El Paso property, we have 160 doors. A renter moves out. Five renters move out. Yeah, our, our cash flow went down that month. But on those assets, and this is the real this is the real answer to your question. Why is it so much better? Our El Paso asset could be 35% vacant and still pay all the bills. Ooh. So let me do some math really quick. And, and we bought well, so 160 doors times 0.35. So 56 tenants could move out. And I would call my investors and say, hey, this month sucks. We're getting destroyed. COVID round two or whatever you know came. I'm calling them and I'm saying, but hey, here's the good news. We bought well. And our expenses are still covered. And so I don't know if you've done any research. Have you ever looked at what the vacancy rates were in 2008, 9, 10, 11? I actually don't know the vacancy rates for 2008, 9, 10, and 11. Yeah. So this is something interesting to look at. And that's why I started my podcast to, to educate people on this. We have this amazing, as investors today, with this benchmark that we can look at, which is the 2008 recession, this amazing piece of information that we can pull data from and look and, and, send benchmarks in our own business. And that's what I've done. So we know that C-class assets, B-class assets, and and across the board, D to A, average vacancy was like 7 to 10%. In some areas that got hit really hard, 15% or more. I'm never buying in those locations. You know, I'm never buying the A-class luxury properties. I'll never, that'll never be me. And I'm never going to buy the D-class war zones, got to take a gun, collect rent properties either. Actually, I did do that, and we'll we'll talk about that. <laughs> okay, I'll never do it again. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> don't worry, it turned out great. But um, I'll never buy those. So if you look at a good asset, B, C class, A class, non luxury, vacancy was seven to ten percent. Maybe got up to fifteen percent with collections, you know, and 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 people not paying rent. So what we do as investors is we say, hey, let's stress test or recession test our deal. When we're looking at a pro forma or the PL, future pacing that PL, we'll say, let's drop the occupancy down to 75%. See what happens if 25% of our renters don't pay or move out. Can't, and then we look at all the expenses, the mortgage. Okay, what's the bottom line? And you know, at 25%, we're still paying all the bills and distributing a little bit of cash to our investors. Then I go up and I click in my nerdy Excel file and say, okay, <laughs> let's go to 30% vacancy. Let's go to 35 30, and I think the El Paso one's like at 34% vacancy. My Dallas property's at like 39% vacancy where it's it recession tests, or in other words, it would still break even at 39% vacancy, which is insane. And so what I know is that 
during 2008, 9, 10, 11, it never got near that bad. Hmm. And so I feel fairly safe as an investor operator, knowing that these deals that I purchased shouldn't ever have an issue. They will always at least break even. And then the other side of that is we do long-term mortgages. So people lost their properties in 2008 in the 2008 recession because they were negative cash flowing because they made poor purchases. They paid too much and their expenses were too high and, and their income wasn't enough to get them through that. Or their mortgages came due and they couldn't refinance or, or sell and they would lose those to the bank. So the two quote unquote recession proof strategies that we have is buy at a price that it can be hugely vacant and still pay the bills and buy with a mortgage that isn't a three to five year mortgage, buy something that's long-term that gives you the flexibility to last out any type of recession. Because if you bought in 2005, six, seven, you weren't going to be able to sell a refi in eight, nine, 10, 11. You needed till 2011, 12, 13 to be able to refi or, or sell. And so people with three, four, five, six, seven year mortgages really, really struggled, really struggled. And, and that's why people lost properties. Interesting. And, you know, I, I'm curious then when you're looking at a deal, what's the, what's the break even occupancy number that like baseline that, that you, you look at? So, and when, when first one, you, I guess, buy the property and I guess when you're analyzing the deal to see if it is a good deal. Yeah, I mean, we like to see really good cash flow and and we're trying not to pay crazy prices. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> but I mean, bare minimum, we want 20%. So we're not going to buy a property unless it can be 20% vacant and still pay the bills. We we just want wiggle room. We want to be able to sleep at night. So here's a fun story for you. The recession, the COVID shutdown came, and I've been preaching these things that I just talked to you about for years. Hey, be be conservative. And I've been telling my single family and fourplex um, investors have six months of mortgages set aside. That's another thing we do. We have six months of expenses, including mortgage payments set aside in these multifamily operating accounts. I call it my sleep at night fund, being able to sleep at night. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been telling these investors for years, hey, have this slush fund, the sleep at night fund for six months of expenses and mortgages just sitting in your account. Stop spending all your cash flow, dang it. And (laughs) they don't listen, of course. And these other multifamily operators don't do it, or they're over leveraged, or the bit their business plan has to go perfectly for them to make money. Well, the re- the shutdown came, and it made us look really smart. And what happened is you have these duplex, fourplex owners calling me, panicking, like some of them crying, like if I don't get uh, rent this month, I can't cover the mortgage. And I'm telling them, like, what the heck? I've been <laughs> I've been telling you guys to have the, this money set aside. What happened? Well, you know, I wanted to go to Disneyland or, you know, I wanted to go to Hawaii. And so <laughs> we spent the cash flow, Sam. I'm like, well, gosh darn it, guys. Come on. Luckily, um, here in Utah, we didn't have a lot of uh, delinquency. Just it's it's really strong economy and COVID didn't affect us quite as much because of our lawmakers and anti-shutdown people here in Utah. So it worked out great. But there's a lot of multifamily owners who panicked and couldn't pay their investors money and also went into the red. So they had delinquency. They had purchased properties that were A-class luxury or maybe D-class or C-class with a poor tenant base. And, or maybe they didn't approach it right or, or whatever they did. But all of a sudden you start hearing all these stories all over the board, all over the country of friends of mine or people I know, syndicators, fund managers, 
absolutely panicking, absolutely fire selling properties or telling their investors they need they, they need a capital call. They're asking for money to cover the expenses and just an absolute disaster. You know, a huge, huge name, not Rod Cleef, but Rod's properties did great. Oh my gosh, I went, I went absolutely blank. Who's the 10x guy? I just went totally Grant, blank. Grant Cardone. Grant Cardone. Thank you. <laughs> I need I need some more. <laughs> you're good. You're good. <laughs> so Grant Cardone did a video of hey, and and he told people, I'm not going to pay you for six months. Whoa. And, and people lost their minds. And it was a smart move on his point. I would have done the same if I was worried about paying the bills on my properties. That's a smart, educated, forward-thinking move by a fund manager saying, hey, let's pause, see what the shutdown does. But there was a lot of people that had to do that because they couldn't pay the bills. He did it because he was like, well, hold on. I just want to make sure this thing doesn't get crazy. And I don't want to have to ask for forbearance from banks. There was other fund managers who didn't tell their investors they weren't going to pay them money. They were asking for money back from their investors to be able to float the bills, to float those properties. And so through the COVID shutdown, I was popping off on my podcast and on Facebook to all my investors saying, I told you so. I told you to have six months. I told you to do this. And it was fun. It was really fun. I don't want ever <laughs> anyone to ever struggle and lose money. I don't wish that on anyone. But at the same time, the shutdown made us look really, really good. And we slept at night. Our properties stayed occupied. We bought really good assets. We we managed them well. And we I don't think we ever dipped below 90% occupancy or 90% rent collections. Wow. Well, and you know what's interesting? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I definitely I saw a statistic too going back to this whole uh, recession proof idea is that I think it's like what, like 92% of all rents were still being paid throughout COVID. So, I mean, even then, I mean, as long as you were managing it correctly and you weren't like a mom, and I guess though, those, those mom and pops definitely got hurt during, during COVID, especially with the eviction moratorium, continue to just push it back where they have to continue to cover their expenses. You know, Overall, I mean, multifamily just seemed to be faring the best out of all the other assets. Oh, yeah, man. I mean, that's why we're in multifamily, because the <laughs> first thing the government did is said, here's a stimulus check. Go pay your rent. We, we don't want you to be homeless. It's the first thing they did for Americans, said, here's a stimulus check. Pay your rent. Live, live on us, and we'll, we'll try and get you through. The government does not want to have to provide housing. They want landlords to get paid so they can provide housing. Now, if you think about the 92% number, that's an average. I know for a fact there's properties in in poor locations or in high shutdown regulated locations like California, Oregon, Cali, (laughs) (laughs) New York, right, where they were well under that, you know, below 80%. Hotels got absolutely destroyed. You know, but so number one, that's why we won't buy in California or anywhere it's not a landlord friendly state. Absolutely, we will not buy in those locations. And that's a really good example why. But also, the people who were owned in those locations and were at 85% collections or 80% collections, I know for a fact really struggled and had to ask for forbearance. And if you don't think asking for forbearance is going to affect you getting loans in the future, um, you have another thing coming because it will. It absolutely will. So Mm -hmm. I know for sure there's properties at 80. 80, 85, but also properties at 99% collections on our property in Cleveland, 100% collected rent throughout the entire shutdown. Nice. We did fine. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, it seems like you've just been kind of cruising through and not really stressing out, <laughs> not really stressing out during this pandemic, which which is really cool to at least like to know and even think that there's an opportunity to invest in multifamily like that and still be safe and secure. Because, I mean, over in California, I'm not gonna lie, it definitely was. There's a lot of freaking out. <laughs> yeah, during, during COVID, people's retirement portfolios were at risk. I mean, I can't I can't imagine what it would be like to be a commercial property owner, hotel owner in California let alone a multifamily owner, because multifamily owners struggled, but didn't do nearly as bad as, as commercial or, or, or hotels. We actually owned, bought a hotel in December of 2019. And this is a fun story. If, if we've got a minute to talk about hotels, yeah, I know we're it. talking about multifamily, but we found this 96 room hotel in, in Farmington, New Mexico. It's the Las Vegas of New Mexico. Not really. It's, it's a terrible place. <laughs> <laughs> um geez, I never want to go there again, but <laughs> okay. But this guy had bought it for, I think it was like $3.2 million, $3.3 million, 10 years ago, run it into the ground. It used to be the number one hotel in Farmington, 96 rooms with a restaurant and a dance hall, a pool, another section for conference rooms or a conference room section. Um, really cool um, hotel that was built in the sixties, open open um, air hotel. So um, no court interior corridors on, I think two acres, really cool common. I mean, it could have been an awesome hotel, but when we bought it, it was absolutely dilapidated. Seven layers of roofing with roof leaks everywhere. The guy just refused to put money into it. The rehab cost was about 750,000. He's trying to sell it for 1.5. And um, this is a fun story. So we made an offer to a million. He accepted, we went and looked at it and we we're like, Oh, hell no. This place is bad and it was shady and there was, there was crime there. And we could tell the guy had just, not only did he let it go, it's like almost like he on purpose was using it for a tax write-off maybe, mm. just running it into the ground. So we backed out and he couldn't sell it. He didn't sell it, didn't sell it. And we talked to the broker and the broker said he just wants to get rid of it. So we went back on a contract for 750000 and remind, re, remember, this guy bought it for $3.3 million. So, oh my gosh, so I'm going to sneeze. No, you're good. You're good. Out. Future Ooh. bless you. <laughs> so um, the guy bought it for $3.3. We're under, con for, under contract for $750. We go back out again and find more stuff that he's hiding. And we're like, dang, man, like we, we were ready to buy this. You know, we, we told our investors about it and found more things. And we, it was just the, the deal was too risky we backed out again and you know we, we kind of wrote it off a few months passed by it's like november of 2019 i'm like man that hotel's still not sold and uh it's next to a, one of the best fly fishing rivers in the world the, the san juan mm -hmm. so i was like well you know maybe i'll go take a trip out there and take a look <laughs> and uh you know good excuse to get to the best river in, in the world for fly fishing and and it's still not sold. We talked to the, the brokers and, and the on-site people. And they're like, he's just letting it go. He wants to get rid of it. And so my partner, and this is kudos to Lyndon, my partner, he goes, well, let's just make him an offer, make him, a, him an offer for whatever he owes in taxes. For he's had, He owed back taxes, wasn't paying his taxes. So we made an offer for $60,000. <laughs> and he counted at $100,000. And four weeks later, we bought a $3.3 million hotel for $100,000 cash. <laughs> okay. oh, I just, <laughs> I wired over the money. I mean, we didn't get a mortgage. Our investors were pissed because they wanted part of that deal because it's a 96 room hotel 
with massive upside. And I said, guys, this deal is insane. We have mold and in some of the rooms we found, well, so here's the reason we backed out in October. We found out he did not allow police on site. What? Yep. Sketchy. And, and so, so we were actually, the, the sheriff down there was being filmed for cops. We sit down at lunch with the sheriff one day. We bought him lunch and, and um, at Subway and we're talking to him and he's like, yeah, man. He's like, I'd love to go bust all those drug dealers and prostitution and, and human traffic traffickers were like, wait a second. Did you say human traffickers? I was like, oh, hell no. So we backed out. That was October, November. We're like, okay, we're going to do this. So we went and met with the city, with the sheriff, the chief of police. And we said, we're buying this thing. We want your guys' help. We want to clean this place up. And they said, so you'll allow us on site. And I said, I said, I'm not going to allow you on site. I will build a surveillance room for you out of one of my second story rooms. Like you can set up a sniper if you want. Like <laughs> I will give you whatever you need to get rid of these damn human traffickers. That is not okay. I mean, drug dealers, like, okay, you're trying to make a buck. You're a shady dude. You're going to sell drugs, whatever. Not the best profession. Prostitution, not cool either. Human trafficking. Ooh. I want those mother effers gone. You know, yeah. like I want them taken out. So we close on, th- on this thing in December. After Christmas, I drive down there. I'm there for a couple weeks, always carrying a gun on me. It was shady. But what we did is as soon as we bought it, we, we talked to the chief of police and I said, hey, I want your cops there every day. And he said, well, I probably don't have the manpower to do that. I said, no, you do. I promise you because I'm going to buy them lunch and dinner. And all I want them to do is show up and sit there in my parking lot eating the lunch I bought for them or eating the dinner I bought for them. I don't think they're going to turn down free food, are they? He's like, oh, no, that's perfect. So <laughs> okay. that's how we started scaring off the, the prostitutes and human traffickers, human traffickers and drug dealers. We had cops there all the time. And the second thing we did, which was genius, which is what my, my partner decided to do, is he would take the, the list of people staying there every night and, and call the police station and run it through their records to see if we had any outstanding warrants. <laughs> and so like every night, the cops are coming to our hotel, kicking in the door, arresting someone. And I call the chief of police. I was like, stop kicking in my damn doors. What the hell, bro? He's like, well, you're sending us these lists. We got to give these people. I'm like, I will give you a key. Stop breaking my doors down, please. I'll give you a master key. Stop it. <laughs> They're like a hundred bucks every time you break, break in a damn door. And it's anyway, it was pretty funny. He laughed. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, at so, least have some class and just, you know, just open it properly and you don't have to kick it open. <laughs> yeah, stop breaking the damn door down, bro. So it took us about two months. I mean, we had we had huge cocaine bus. We did a joint sting with U.S. Marshals, Drug Task Force in Farmington, Sheriff's I mean, everyone was there. U.S. Marshals were, they, they kind of found out who we, we were and they were excited to work with us. And so we did some stings, got kilos, I mean, huge amounts of cocaine, gold-plated AK-47s machine guns out of rooms, you know, so we got the drug dealers out of there and a few still showed up. And luckily as the cops showed up, they would kind of either leave the room and run out really quick, or they'd be circling, you know, the drug dealers that hadn't been there in a while and they'd see the cop car and you'd see them kind of try and play it cool and then take off really <laughs> quick and, and leave, you know? So we, the reputation of the place changed. It turned into a nice hotel. Again, we were remodeling rooms really ready just to slay it in 2020. We were we were so excited. We we're going to cash flow that thing like crazy. It was going to be a cash cow and COVID hit. And I went to like 9% occupancy. Oh. Couldn't even pay the bills. I was like, oh shit. 
okay, so um, multifamily, <laughs> all my multifamily <laughs> assets are doing fine. This is why people buy multifamily because hotel isn't a necessity. Like people don't live in hotels. They, they, they get their stimulus checks and they stay at home. They stay in their pro- their apartment. And that's when it, the light bulb really went off. And I had a, my coach actually has a, has a Hilton. He went to 11% occupancy <sighs> and all, all events got canceled for the next year. And he had to get forbearance and, and work with his bank. And it was nasty and terrible. And we didn't have a mortgage. We could have just shut the place down. And, but I didn't want to fire my people. I had these loyal, fantastic employees and we paid their salary out of our bank accounts, out of my personal bank account, out of Lyndon's personal bank account. We did not shut the place down specifically because we didn't want to leave these seven, eight people high and dry. And we thought we could come back pretty soon and and we didn't think the shutdown was going to last long. So we're bankrolling this thing out of our personal bank accounts, which sucks. And that's a terrible idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> absolutely do not recommend. <laughs> and then we get PPP a month and a half later, you know, that yeah. we do okay. And and then since the city loves us, they call me up and they're like, hey, would you be open to housing quarantine people in your hotel? I mean, so it's people that need that had COVID or tested positive or were being tested for COVID, but that didn't need to be hospitalized. I'm like, well, yeah, how much would you guys pay? And they're like, just name your price. And I was like, oh, shit. okay. How about like $70, $80 a night? Our average nightly rate was like 50. And they're like, okay. And we huh. also need you to provide meals, three, three meals a day for these people. And so I just doubled the cost of the meals. I was like, how about this price? And they're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, we also need 24 hour surveillance to make sure these people don't leave the rooms because they're quarantined. And I was like, okay, how about $30 an hour? They're like, okay. And I paid my people $9 an hour to do security. Wow. So I was making like $21 an hour, 24 seven for three months on security, doubling the money on the meals because it was a lot of work, but we profited a huge amount from COVID because we provided a very, very necessary needed service for the city. They were overwhelmed. Hospitals couldn't handle it. They had nowhere else to put these people. And they, they said they did not mind. They didn't care how much they had to pay us. They needed us. And so if you go back to doing things the right way, if we had tried to continue running the, the hotel with these cash paying criminals, we'd have, we would have been hosed. That Not only is that not the right thing to do, but we would have missed out on this amazing opportunity to save our hotel from COVID and to help a lot of people. You know, we got rid of the human traffickers, but then we also helped people through COVID. We made our, we helped our employees not lose their jobs, paid them through COVID. They did fine. We let a bunch of them move into the hotel if they, you know, had issues with, with their rentals. Mm -hmm. So we get through COVID it's June. Somebody hears about what we've got going on. They come and they, they pay us over three times what we paid for the hotel. And we tripled our money in six months. In addition to all the amazing cash flow we made, we got the hell out of hotel owning and we'll (laughs) never do it again. (laughs) I mean, that is the, the best hotel story that I have had that I've ever heard. Just I mean, I feel like it could almost be made into like a movie. It sounded like it was just like straight out of Breaking Bad. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, lots of drugs. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't do any drugs, but I feel sometimes I felt like I needed to. <laughs> hey, what are you guys taking? <laughs> Jeez, it was rough. Yeah. The best part is that the guy painted it Smurf Blue, the oh. owner before us. So it was this giant 96-room hotel painted smurf blue and everyone knew and i couldn't wait to to paint that thing they've painted it now and 
man, Smurf Blue Hotel. I called it, called it the Smurf Hotel. Just hideous. Just absolutely oh, hideous. Man. I do have one funny story about, about this. My, my business partner kind of tested each other. This was a really good test to, to test our um, patients and how we deal with stress. And this is the moment I knew Lyndon was a good partner. So, I mean, it's been stressful. This was like May and COVID's kicking our butt, but now we're making a comeback for, you know, and we're down there together and there's seven layers of roofing have been raining and leaking into our, our lobby. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to get on the roof and just rip this sucker up, figure out where the hole is and plug it with tar or something. Cause our roofer couldn't get there. And so I'm ripping up the, 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 the roof and drilling holes. And I just wanted to like, have all the water go to one area and stop leaking everywhere. And there was really big low spots in, in the roof and it was sunny and it was fine. I should have looked at the weather though, because a giant rainstorm was coming in the afternoon. Oof. So, so I had drilled these two holes and I'm trying to funnel them through the roof down into PVC pipes into our toilets or our shower or our showers, because there was so much water up on the roof. The, the, anyways, it was a bad situation. Well, I got done with the first hole, kind of had it going towards the the toilet. That was good, kind of ingenious, if you ask me. <laughs> Not um, that's pretty smart. It's a nice um, little uh, quick, 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 uh, quick, quick solution. Pick. Yeah, yeah quick so picks. I'm halfway done with the second hole, and it starts pouring rain. And I've got this worker paying him like nine bucks an hour on the inside of the hotel, ripping out drywall. And all of a sudden, I go down there, and water's just gushing on him. Uh. We're trying to find the hole, and moldy gross water just coming down on him and i'm like bro i don't think you're getting paid enough to do this you should probably go home <laughs> like i'll finish <laughs> it was nasty so linden's freaking out and linden freaking out is like he's not even mad he's like hey this isn't okay sam you shouldn't you shouldn't be doing this like what the heck let's get some sandbags like he didn't even yell like most people be losing their shit if you had gallons and gallons of water pouring into your hotel and i'm like look linden it's been this way for like 10 years it's just a little bit more water. It's been leaking for 10 years. We're not really doing anything that hasn't already been done. He wasn't happy. He got sandbags up there and kind of plugged my hole. I finished the PVC pipe and it was fine. But I think that's the maddest I've ever seen Linda. I don't, I don't, he doesn't get that mad, but he was, he was really nice about it. But he was not happy about my decision making that day about drilling holes in the roof and without looking at the weather and knowing that mm. there's a massive thunderstorm coming that filled our hotel with probably 200 gallons of water. We clean it up, you know, clean it up. It was fine, but it's a funny story now, but you kind of need those things as partners. We, we got through the U.S. Marshals joint stings. That was kind of fun. But then we got through the stress of owning a hotel. We learned a lot about each other. We learned about how we deal with stress and we're best buddies now. I, I don't think there's anything that could happen in a deal that would stress us out more than owning a moldy drug-ridden hotel and, and having me drill holes in the roof during a rainstorm. So we kind of laugh about it now, but it was a great opportunity to see what a good partner and friend he is and how he doesn't lose his mind when, when he gets mad. And wow. And, and I feel like there's just a lot of, there's a lot of power in that. In a way y'all were like stress testing uh, each other's uh, <laughs> partnership yeah. and friendship. And, you know, I think that's a, that's a really good note. So, you know, as I am starting to like dive into this industry more and just like understanding how people take stress and how people respond yeah. to certain situations and their decision-making and then even how they communicate it well. We don't have to call them out, but have you ever had like situations where you dealt with like a bad partnership and 
Yeah, man, I was about to say in, in 2018, I left the fourplex group and made a, a, a very firm decision. I said, I will never work with dishonest, negative people ever again, mm-hmm. no matter how much money is involved. You know, the saying when, when there was four of us salesmen at the, the fourplex company, the saying was, you can put up with a lot of shit for a million dollars a year. That was our motto. It was terrible. I didn't come up with that. <laughs> it is absolutely terrible. I, we, we, the, the ownership group was not being honest. They kept telling us they'd build better quality. They'd build better quality. They'd do things. And it was just a negative, narcissistic, dog-eat-dog environment. And, and I hated it. And I'm, all, I'm a guy that like I'll give up some of my share of a, a deal or money because I want it to be fair. I want people to be happy and work together. I'm very much a team player. And that didn't count for anything with that group. And it was terrible. And, and when I left, they actually wanted me to keep my mouth shut about quality. They wanted me to stop raising hell for my investors and stop demanding different things that I thought were just normal things that a builder should provide. And they offered me a lot of money just to keep my mouth shut. And, and then I said, no, I'm, I'm okay not doing that. I'm not going to sacrifice my integrity. They didn't like hearing that. So they said, okay, you're done. And I lost a lot of money. I had two more projects lined up in, in Boise with them and, and lost seven figures worth of commissions. That sucked. That was stressful. But I went home and told my wife, I'm like, hey, I'm done. They asked me to leave. And I feel really good about it because I hated working there. And I don't know how I'm going to replace that seven-figure income, but she was excited. And I was excited to be done with those people. The business was fun. The fourplexes made my investors a ton of money despite the quality issues. And so it was hard. But that's when I said, okay, I've been wanting to get into multifamily and do syndication for a while. Now I can control what happens with my properties. I can be the one in control. So I'll never do a deal ever again or have a partnership ever again where I don't control everything. Mm. And that's just how I am. I will not be beholden to someone else because at the end of the day, you can know people well, but under stress or when there's money comes involved, people can make poor decisions. They can make dishonest decisions. And so the partners I work with now know that Sam's always going to have control at the end of the day. If there's a partnership, I'll have to have 51%, maybe not of the money of the profit, but at least control. I'm okay giving up money and sharing money equally. That's no problem, but not control. And so I made that decision. I will only work with happy, fun people who are fair-minded. It can never be about the money. It can never be about, hey, you're making this much, so I need to make this much. It needs to be, hey, let's get this project done. Let's make each other a bunch of money. And let's make our investors a bunch of money. And that's what I craved. And that's what I craved. And and I craved honesty. And I'm black and white. If you're dishonest, I'm not going to shut the hell up about it. And if it doesn't get fixed, we're done. So I brought Lyndon on in 2018. Very honest, good person. Fantastic person. Actually, was just in Costa Rica speaking at a business conference. And this is what I talked about. They thought I was going to talk about multifamily. But I talked about picking partners and picking people with integrity who can have your back. And we brought on Tien in 2020, found us some fantastic, excuse me, fantastic deals. And she ended up being just a a huge addition. And we took down just over $50 million with the properties last year. We purchased a, a number of different deals. And in December, we were closing three different deals. So $36 million of multifamily, one in El Paso, one in Dallas, one in Cleveland. And, you know, I'm going to talk about this because it, it has a very, it's had a very huge impact on my life. 
And I'm so glad I picked the partners I did. My, my wife and I started getting divorced in, in November. She walked out on me and the kids that I'm done being a mom, done being a wife. She struggled with depression her whole life, got worse with each kid. I've been a stay at home or work from home dad since 2017 to make sure the kids are okay. It's been scary and weird having that. I was going to support her till the end and, and wasn't going to ever leave the kids or her. She just did us a favor and said, I'm done the day before Thanksgiving. And that was crazy. I, I had wanted out, but I was never going to leave the kids with her. So me and the kids are reeling from this, hey, I'm done situation. She ended up wanting to have 50% custody, which is where we're at now. But Thanksgiving and and the first week of December is when I was supposed to be raising money for these deals. I, I needed to raise, I think it was like $14 million for these three deals. And I was a basket case. I mean, I was wanted to make sure my kids were okay. I thought she was going through an episode. She had had some pretty scary situations when they were babies. And Lyndon and Tien, and then my partner, Michael, stepped up and they said, buddy, we got you. Don't worry. We will take care of you and we will do these deals. And it's a very different situation than where I was with other partnerships, where if they saw some weakness or they saw any opportunity, they would take that money from you. They might get your back, but it would be about how much money they could take from you and how, how they could take advantage of the opportunity. And that's what happened. These guys stepped up and they said, Sam, we love you, buddy. We'll do anything for you. Don't worry about it. Take care of your kids. I moved out. Nasty situation. Really, really tough. We ended up closing the the three deals, $36 million with a multifamily. Mentally, I was able to get back in the game, kind of. Raised the money because I'm the only one in our partnership that raises money, but they did everything else. I dropped the ball on everything else. I said, guys, I will still raise the money. I, I know I'm the only one that does that. The investors talk to me. They know me. They don't know you guys. And so we raised the money. Uh, the bank's freaking <laughs> so annoying. Uh, a week before Christmas for the Dallas deal, they came back and said, we need you to raise an extra one and a half million dollars. Because of COVID, we're a little bit scared still. And so my investors were all on vacation, Christmas vacation. They're gone. And we had to close for tax purposes. We had to close these deals before the end of the year. And so. Uh, up until 7 p.m. on Christmas Eve, I'm raising money. I'm calling my investors saying, wire me another 100,000. Wire me another 500,000. And after Christmas, I'm calling and calling and calling and trying to be a really good dad, trying to be happy and positive for the kids and then raise money. And everything else in my life was just insane, crazy. And my my investors had my, be- had my back and, or my investors, my partners had my back. They carried me through and we closed the deals, we raised the money, and it's been six months. And you know, I'm I'm doing fantastic now. The kids are actually doing better now that they're away from from that depression or that issue with my ex 50% yeah. of the time. They're doing great. I'm doing great. It's it's been a blessing. And that was the stress test for my partnership. They they had my back. I ended up giving them a, a larger portion of those deals, a larger portion of my share. They didn't ask for it. And, and I will always do that. I always reward people for having my back and, and take care of them. And man, what a great partnership we have now. And what a testament to choosing the right partners. And, and I got really choked up in Costa Rica. It was the first time I, I spoke about it. But man, Tien, what a rock star individual. Lyndon, what a rock star individual who I put them through a lot of, I mean, they, had, they were working 60, 70 hour weeks during Christmas break and after Christmas and just to pick up my slack. And they never complained. They said they were happy to do it. 
And so moving forward, Lyndon didn't have all the skills I needed as a partner. Tien didn't have all the skills I needed as a partner. They learned fast and that's didn't, that wasn't what I cared about. I cared about their integrity, what type of person they were. And they've grown and, and they're, they're outpacing any, any hopes and dreams I had for them as partners. They're amazing. And, and you know, we have that goal to get to a billion dollars in assets by 2029. I don't think there's anything that can stop us um, other than ourselves and, and slowing down. So just awesome partners, awesome people and integrity. And that was just what, what saved us and got us through that, that really, really shitty situation in, in December last year. And, and now we're buying another 187 doors in Cleveland. And geez, if we can do three deals through the holidays, through a divorce, one deal in Cleveland right now is like, oh, no sweat. <laughs> so we're excited to be moving on and, and doing much easier deals and through easier times. Holy cow. I mean, you know, like one, like, thank you just like for opening up and, and sharing. Cause I mean, the, going through that, I can't imagine like just the, the stress and the emotional hit it took, um, just on, on you. And, you know, um, even, even with the kids, cause like my parents are divorced too. And like, it, it's tough. It's, yeah. it's definitely tough. I can't even imagine like what it's like being in, in your situation. And I, I think it's just like, what's really beautiful uh, about it is, is the fact like with your partners, I mean, like when, when I, I guess like originally thought about real estate, like, and people are always talking about adding value, like, oh, you just got to add value to your partners. Um, make sure you have compliment, complementary skill sets, et cetera. Like at the end of the day, like it really is a relationship and yeah. all about like having those ethics and, and that integrity where like people can learn those skills eventually, but like, do you trust those people to kind of bring you through the, through the fire? And so, I mean, it's, it's definitely inspirational on, on my part. And and I hope to even have like partnerships like that in the future, as I am starting to, you know, dive into this industry more and more and more. And, you know, it, it's been such a common theme where it's, it's, this isn't transactional. Yeah. Like this is, this is very relationship people business driven people business, like within the people in the communities, your partners, your investors, et cetera. So it's all about people. Huh? Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, talking about it just being transactional for some people um, and, and integrity, uh, I actually coach for Rod Cleef and one of my coaching students found a deal. I don't know why he didn't bring it to me first, but <laughs> he brought in this other guy who's going to be a sponsor and it was a good enough deal. The guy just took it from him. Cool. He had all the leverage, had his name on the paperwork and just said, oh, I, sorry, buddy, I guess you're not part of this deal anymore because I want it. And what a stark Dang. difference, right? Like, yeah, my partners could want a deal. I mean, Jason Perro, he's bringing us deals that like they already have a lot of people in the deal, but he wants us to be a part of it because he's our partner up in Cleveland. He wants us to be a part of this deal in Arizona with him. And it's, I'd rather be a part of a small part of a bunch of deals than a huge part of one deal and treat people right. So, you know, we brought Jason in on a Florida deal, really small deal. I said, Jason, we like you. Let, let's do a deal together in Florida. And there's a very big difference, very big difference between being transactional. And man, this kid is hurt. He, he's hurt and he flew out, did the due diligence, put up earnest money. This guy's going to pay him his earnest money back. But he was ready to do a, a $10 million deal in, in Atlanta that he found and got it taken away from him. So number one, put thing in, things in writing. Even though I trust my partners, everything's in writing. It avoids the awkward conversation of if someone has a life-changing experience or situation, it's in writing. We already know how to deal with it. And, and the best way to get started in syndication is finding deals. So if you're the guy that really wants to get started, guy or girl, 
that wants to get started, go find good deals, learn how to underwrite them, use Michael Bonk's software, and there's ways to learn it on, on YouTube, but get something in writing. So now my coaching student, his, his assignment is to find a GP or find an, uh, an asset manager, um, a partner that he wants to work with and say, hey, if I find you a deal, what does it look like? And let's sign something today. And when do I bring you the deal? Let's sign something then as well, saying you're not going to cut me out. And here's what the partnership looks like. Rather than bringing this sexy deal and having the awkwardness of, okay, well, who gets what? So be smart about it. Even though you think you trust someone, put it in writing, be smart about it. It's always always good to protect yourself and you know make sure that there's the expectations are met uh, along both sides. Huh. Yep. Interesting. Well, you know, I was going to actually... Uh, bring this into and cut this into two episodes with talking about like different action items for someone starting. But I feel like the conversation flowed so well, where I kind of want to just combine, not kind of, I do want to combine just like both of the episodes into one, just because I want to be conscious of our time. But, you know, since we are on the topic of starting out and like finding deals, I mean, what advice would you give then for someone that is just starting out? Let's say they, they don't have money like myself, um, <laughs> that that want to you know get experience and and learn and, and creates these partnerships and and uh, relationships. Yeah, I mean everyone needs a mentor, and, and that's what I did. I, you know, I could raise money, and and I had money, but I found a month a mentor and someone who could teach me the ropes, teach me the best practices in the business. So Rod Cleef has an amazing amazing. I don't get paid to say this but he has an amazing education system set up for multifamily investors. Hmm. If you want to really learn the business, he'll teach you everything. What I would say is focus on two things. Focus on meeting people that want to buy, invest in, or who already do multifamily. Number two was, would be learn how to underwrite and, and recognize a good deal. Learn it really, really, really well and bring deals to some, some good investors like myself. So that's how we hired Tien and made her a partner. We didn't hire her. We made her a partner is she brought us an Albuquerque deal. And I had been talking to her for about a year. I talked to her in 2019. Someone sent her my way. I was teaching her, talking with her, looking at deals with her. And in 2020, she brought us this Albuquerque deal and it's going to be an infinite return for us. We're going to be able to refinance out all of our money, give it all back to our investors. And we're still going to cash flow that thing like crazy probably in the next year. So we bought it and her, her underwriting was on par. Just, she was new at it. She had a few questions still, but she really did a good job of understanding underwriting. And she was calling brokers like crazy looking for deals. And so there's a few metrics that, that we look at and I helped her with those. And I said, I just want to know, is there upside? Find me a deal in a landlord friendly location with upside. So And there's three tiers of upside. And that's something really important for a newbie to understand. Most people focus on upside. Whereas if I'm going to rehab and remodel, there's upside. Well, that's actually tier two, the tier one. And the, the number one thing we look for is upside without spending money. And that's, that creates the lowest risk deals, the most profitable deals, the easiest deals to do. So our Cleveland deal if we buy it tomorrow, we can start raising rents two to 300 bucks without doing anything because it's so under rented. The guy's owned it for 30 something years. His parents owned it for 20, 30 years before him. So is there upside without doing any work? 
And so Tien started looking for those type of deals. That's the Albuquerque deal she brought to us. Okay, but once we buy it and we do some work to it, is there also upside if we put in new kitchens and, and new new bathrooms and, and do different things like that? Yes, there's an additional on this Cleveland deal, two, 300 bucks and upside that way. So that's tier two. Tier three is, is the market appreciating? Are the rents going to continue appreciating? That's the tier that, yes, we have to have, but we're not going to do the, do the deal based on that. We're not, we're not into speculation and just sitting on tiny returns for long-term. We need really good cash flow because again, cash flow is king during any recession. So every deal we buy and we look at has to have serious upside without doing work and then some really good upside by doing some work. And those are the two things we look at the most. And then of course, what price we're going to pay and, and does it make sense to, to buy that deal? Got it. And so, you know, understanding how the deal is taken down, the underwriting, you know, your return metrics, your exit cap, all those, you know, actually that's what I'm starting to understand a little bit more now. And it's just the importance of underwriting, whether you're talking with brokers, even if you're not going to even be that master underwriter, like just understanding how the structure is going, is going to be extremely beneficial, which in whatever position that you're taking in a partnership, you know, I'm, Curious. I just lost my train of train. You need to understand the numbers. Any partner in any deal needs to understand the numbers. I yeah. I get investors that are like, okay, sounds good. I'm like, don't you want to look at the numbers with on what you're investing in? Like a little scary. (laughs) You're trusting me way too much. So I try to educate my investors and be like, hey, let's walk through the spreadsheet. Some of them they're just not nerdy enough. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I'm really nerdy, so I get all excited about spreadsheets, but. Even as an investor, you should understand underwriting a little bit. You should understand, hey, I like this Sam guy and let me walk through his underwriting. But you shouldn't just say, hey, I like this guy. I'm going to give him money. So right. the the risk in, in investing in these deals is number one is does the operator know what he's doing? Does he have integrity? Is he going to do a good job operating this asset? That's the number one thing in my opinion because you can have an amazing purchase, amazing deal, and people can still run it into the ground and lose money. So that's number one is does Sam and his group know how to asset manage and make money? Number two is, is this a good deal? Are they fluffing the numbers? There's a million ways to make a deal look better than it really is. And so you should be able to recognize that as an investor, but also as someone trying to do deals and, and be an operator or or be a partner in these deals. And, you know, I'm curious. So uh, one of the, I remember you were talking about how like some of the, for like criteria and what you look for, you look for long-term mortgages. How long are, are your typical syndications? Like, So we, we try to cash out as much of the money by doing a, a supplementary loan or a cash out refi okay. in year three. So if you give me a hundred thousand dollars, you invest a hundred thousand dollars with us. I'm trying to give you a hundred thousand dollars back in three, three years. Yeah. It's not always possible, especially in a hot market. So maybe it's 50,000, but then you can compound your investment and go reinvest it with us in another deal. Your percentage ownership doesn't change when we give you money back. So you're still growing, still cash flowing on the money that's in the deal. You can go and reinvest. So we want to turn that money every three years and that'll get you to your end retirement goal, you know, way faster in half the time. Oh, oh go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. So, so then we're going to sell in, in 10 years. We're going to do a 10-year mortgage and um, hold it long-term, be recession-proof, but refi out as much of the money as we can in three years to make sure we keep lowering your risk in the deal and being able to let you leverage up your money and compound your investment every three years or as much as possible. Mm, Got it. Okay. 
You know what's uh, it's super interesting? You're actually the first person that I've ever met that does 10-year syndications. I've the mo- Most of the people that I've met is, I guess, just they usually stick with their five to, to seven years. And I always hear like, oh, sometimes people will do 10, 10 years, but 10 years, you're, you're the first person that, that has done 10 years. <laughs> Recession-proof, <laughs> baby. I mean, I don't want investors that are greedy. I don't want investors that are impatient. I turn those people away and say, go go find someone else that's pitching you a sexier deal. I don't want you. I would rather a smart, educated, sophisticated investor invest with me that understands this is a marathon. We're not trying to make a quick buck. And not that three and five year syndications are like that, but that's the mentality I want to stay away from is we could sell in five years and we have the ability to. And don't get me wrong, if I'm doubling my money, like the hotel, if I can triple my money in three or five years, I'm going to sell and we're going to buy something else. So we have the power to do that. But the 10 years, the 10 year mortgage gives us the flexibility and the wiggle room in case the, the market goes down and ask those, you know, if the market does go down today, ask those syndicators doing five year deals, how they feel about it. Mm. They're going to be sweating bullets. Mm. That's what I want to avoid. And you, you take a very conservative approach and with your investments yeah. and then dealing with investors money. I, I respect that a lot. I respect that a lot. Doesn't matter how much money you make if you can't keep it. Warren Buffett's the number one rule for Warren Buffett is never lose money. His number two rule is never forget rule number one. Yeah. <laughs> good. This is good rules. Yeah. Quick, quick question then when you're underwriting for these 10 years, for these 10 year syndications, traditionally, like what, what's your exit cap rate? Like how much, how many basis points do you move up when you're underwriting for these deals? We're usually jumping a, a point from where we buy it. So okay. if we're buying it at a six cap, we're going to say we're going to sell it a seven. You know, we can't control the market. Okay. And that's one thing, one way in syndicators or these fund managers make their deals look sexy is they're buying at a six cap and they're, they're saying, oh, the market's going to stay really hot. We're going to sell it at a five cap. Well, of course your deal looks amazing at that. Yeah. And maybe it happens. But traditionally, we know real estate's on a 10-year cycle. We're in a super cycle right now. I'm not going to bank on that. And yeah. my deals don't look as sexy. But if you're a smart, educated, sophisticated investor, you understand that you're trying to stay away from these guys that are making their deals look way too sexy. And you're trying to keep your money in a highly profitable but lower risk environment. And so what I tell people is I have the best risk-adjusted returns that you will find. That's really important. Best risk-adjusted returns. We're still making money hand over fist, double-digit returns with insane tax write-offs. We're making plenty of money for our investors. Amazing money. There's no reason to get greedy and try and find those ultra-sexy, too-good-to-be-true deals because their risk is going to be reflective of how sexy they are and or sexy-looking they are. Mm. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, if, if you're single guy, I'm now, have you heard of the hot and crazy scale? Oh, from uh, how I met your mother. There's a hot and crazy scale for investments too, man. If it looks super, super hot, there's a good chance it could be a crazy risky deal, you know? Yeah. So we, we kind of use that hot and crazy scale on our deals as well. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, no, that's a, I've never, that's a, I've never heard somebody at least just like parallel that to, to that hot crazy scale buying multifamilies like dating girls you know you just you got to use that hot and crazy scale and for um not to uh, promote you but for any of my other listeners he is single and (laughs) emphasis on the single reach out to him um and you know i guess that brings me to my point and reaching the end of this podcast 
if people want to reach out to you, how can they reach out to you? So website is MFI club. So like multifamily investment club.com. My cell phone's 801-995-2220. You can throw it in the show notes, text me. Don't email me, please. My email's all over the website, I think. Just don't email me. I get way too many. Um, <laughs> I do. I respond really great to text. Cool. Sounds good. And those will des- definitely be in the show notes along with along with this website and a cell phone number. Make sure to reach out to him. Sam, it's honestly, this is one of my favorite podcast episodes. I, I've learned so much about you and just hearing your stories. It, it's just been, it's, it's been in, very inspirational, you know, as I still chug along this journey into being a, a real estate investor. So thank you again for, for coming. I'm sure my audience definitely, definitely learned a lot too, just, just from hearing your story. So, so thank you again for opening up. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. And everyone, thank you for listening and have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Multifamily Artist Podcast. If you got any value out of this episode, I'd greatly appreciate if you head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review the show, which will help more people receive that same value. If you're looking to connect and talk more about multifamily real estate, you can reach me at inrhythmmultifamily.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.